Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Dr. Anish Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about lung cancer with Dr. Gavit Woodard. Dr. Woodard is an assistant professor of surgery at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology. Maybe we can start off by you telling us a little bit more about yourself and what it is you do. Yes, so I am a thoracic surgeon at Yale. That means that I deal with all thoracic diseases in the chest, but the majority of our practice tends to be focused on lung cancer and patients with lung cancer. You know, we often hear about lung cancer um, and as one of the most common cancers there is and and likely uh, one of the leading killers of people as well in terms of cancer-related death. Can you tell us a little bit more about lung cancer? What what are the statistics now in terms of incidence and mortality and um, and what kind of goes into that? Yes, definitely. So as you mentioned, lung cancer is the leading cause of cancer mortality in the U.S. and worldwide. It's the number one cause of cancer mortality in men and women. Uh, It is uh, the number two most common cancer in terms of who actually is diagnosed. So in women, it's number two, second to breast. And in men, it's number two, second to prostate. But those cancers aren't as deadly as lung cancer. And so even though more patients get diagnosed with them, more patients end up ultimately dying of lung cancer. So if you think about your lifetime rate of developing lung cancer, it's about 6%. That's one in 16 uh, U.S. adults will end up with a lung cancer diagnosis. Men get it slightly more frequently than women. Um, And we have seen these rates uh, slowly decline in recent years, um, but it still accounts for the majority of lung cancer deaths. And so tobacco use is still the most common cause for lung cancer, right? But is that just cigarette smoking? How common is uh, it to get lung cancer after other forms of smoking, like pipe smoking, cigar smoking, or perhaps more commonly these days, vaping. Do we have numbers on that? So all of those things do put you at risk for developing lung cancer. Um, Tobacco products in general still account for the vast majority of lung cancer cases. Uh, Other things that we think of as exposure risks besides tobacco tend to be things like radon exposure, asbestos, secondhand smoke, and air pollution is also recognized as a, a possible cause. But the other thing that's worth mentioning is that even among never smokers, we are seeing a rise in the incidence of lung cancer, meaning that more and more people who have never smoked cigarettes at all are being diagnosed with lung cancer. About one in five new lung cancer diagnoses is in a person who has never smoked at all. And if you were to think of lung cancer among never smokers, it would account for the number seven global cause of cancer mortality just among people who never smoked. Wow. That's really interesting. Why, why is it that people who have never smoked get lung cancer and why is that rate rising? 
Uh, we don't have great answers for that yet. Uh, some of it is probably because we are uh, doing a good job of screening patients, whether they've been smokers or not, people are getting more CT scans and we are catching lesions at an earlier stage or perhaps someone is found to have a small, slow-growing adenocarcinoma who was a never smoker just because uh, we are using a lot of cross-sectional imaging, meaning CT scans on a patient uh, who rolls into the emergency room for some reason or who is having a CT scan to screen for coronary artery calcifications. So, you know, then that raises the question. Right now, we have lung cancer screening for people who are heavy smokers, right? And maybe you can tell us a little bit more about the guidelines as to who qualifies for lung cancer screening with low-dose CT scans. But with the rate of... um of lung cancer increasing in never smokers, should that be expanded? I mean, should we be thinking about screening more people uh, for lung cancer if people who have smoked less or who have never smoked are actually increasing in terms of their rate of developing lung cancer? Yes, that's a great question and probably something that is coming on the horizon. Uh, when the first trials were done to look at lung cancer screening as a way of detecting lung cancer earlier, we had the, the Nelson trial and the in the United States, the National Lung Cancer Screening Trial. The original criteria for these were a little bit more stringent. They had a, a tighter age range and a greater pack year smoking history, meaning that they were really targeting people who were felt to be the most at risk for lung cancer. And these trials show that if you did lung cancer screening, which means it's an annual low-dose CT scan done in someone who we think is at risk for lung cancer, you can reduce lung cancer mortality by 20%. And these were really remarkable results, and uh, this is widely approved. Uh, annual lung cancer screening CT scans are covered by Medicare and most private insurance. Um, and as we have had more data and more experience with lung cancer screening CTs, we've actually started to widen the criteria, meaning we're screening more and more people. So we've dropped the age now to 50 years, so anyone over 50 would qualify, and we've dropped the smoking requirement down to 20 pack years. So anyone over 50 who has a, a relevant smoking history, who's a current smoker, or who's quit within the last 15 years would qualify for lung cancer screening CT scans. And so more to come on whether that expands to people who have never smoked. Um, right. So, um, so with low-dose CT screening, you had mentioned that the mortality of lung cancer is actually coming down. Um, what What's the proportion, do you think, of people who are diagnosed with lung cancer because uh, they're caught through screening versus because they are symptomatic and are, are diagnosed at a later stage? Right. So if you're having symptoms of lung cancer, chances are it's a, a more advanced tumor centrally located or that you may have metastatic disease already. We know that right now about half of patients who are diagnosed with lung cancer, the disease has already spread to distant sites. And so the five-year survival, if your lung cancer is caught late with distant spread, is only 7%. 
But if you can catch lung cancer when it's localized, meaning just within the lungs and maybe even not in any regional lymph nodes, but just localized lung cancer has a five-year overall survival of 61%. So the goal of screening is to shift our population of patients for those with advanced disease to those with localized disease where we're much more likely to cure them with the therapies that we have available. You talked about how we are actually doing a great job in moving the needle. If you want to talk about where you can make a difference in terms of spending cancer money and cancer research, there is a lot of work to do um, in lung cancer. So back in the 70s, when they first started tracking these numbers, the five-year overall survival of lung cancer was about 12%. It didn't change much between then and 2000. And back in 2000, the five-year survival of kind of all patients diagnosed with lung cancer was 15%. But in recent years, we have really started to make a difference here, and that's for a few reasons that we can touch on. But so the most recent set of data that we have, the, the five-year survival on lung cancer is now up at 23%. And I expect that this will continue to improve for a variety of reasons. One of these is lung cancer screening. So even though we have a lot of room to go in terms of getting this widely adopted by patients and providers, um, having lung cancer screening more available to patients and having good uptake of that will catch cancers at an earlier stage where we're more likely to cure them. And then we also have some really exciting other therapies now available for lung cancer. And these include both targeted therapies and immunotherapy. And those are making a big difference in terms of extending life expectancy and in some cases even curing patients with advanced or metastatic disease, whereas in the past we would not have had great treatment options for those patients. And so, and I would imagine the, the other place where you've really moved the needle is in terms of smoking cessation programs. Is that right? Is the number of smokers in the country going down? It certainly seems like that when you walk on the streets, uh, you see fewer people smoking, you see more uh, airplanes, for example, are, are smoke-free, many more restaurants are smoke-free. Um, are we making a difference there too? Yes, that that is an area where it's been a great kind of public health education, and we are having lower and lower rates of smokers. Um, we are still diagnosing quite a few smoking-related cancers, though. There's about a 20-year lag between when someone is smoking and when we see those changes uh, in lung cancer rates. And so you can see that they are falling uh, probably primarily because of all the smoking cessation efforts. There are a lot of programs available um, at, at our hospital and elsewhere where patients can enroll in a smoking cessation clinic and they have additional resources to help people who are interested in quitting. And so, you know, between the smoking prevention and screening, uh, we're, we're trying to pick these cancers up earlier and earlier, and then we've got these great new treatments. So let's kind of take it um bit by bit. So for patients who are picked up with screening where they have a relatively small tumor, they've been asymptomatic, um, tell us a little bit more about how the diagnosis is made and what they might expect in terms of treatment. 
Yeah, so for an asymptomatic patient, typically their tumors tend to be found either on a lung cancer screening CT scan or just incidentally, meaning it was a CT scan done for another reason that happened to see a lung nodule. Sometimes we catch them on x-ray, but most often on CT scan. Um, And so for those patients, the treatment options, if it's a, a tumor localized just to the lung without lymph node involvement, they'll either get treated with surgery or radiation. And the radiation that they get there, SBRT, is targeted. It's very strong, and so it really fries the area. When we're counseling patients one way or the other, I'm a surgeon, I have my bias, but I would say everyone tends to agree that if you can have surgery, that that is a better treatment option. We're able to fully remove the tumor. We would sample all the lymph nodes and get someone a very accurate stage as well as tissue on the tumor. Um, And this can typically be done with small incisions, um, a short hospital stay. Uh, Across the country and at Yale, we do uh, the vast majority of these operations minimally invasively. And so the recovery time is quite quick and patients get back to their normal life. Radiation is the other treatment option for these patients, and so that's typically used for patients who may not have enough lung reserve to have a portion of their lung removed with surgery. And so those patients can have radiation therapy, and that's quite successful for patients who can't have surgery. Fantastic. Well, we are going to take a short break for a medical minute. And when we come back, we'll learn more about the advances in treatment of lung cancer with my guest, Dr. Gavit Woodard. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers comes from Smilo Cancer Hospital, where their Center for Gastrointestinal Cancers provides patients with gastric cancers a comprehensive multidisciplinary approach to the treatment of their cancer, including clinical trials. SmiloCancerHospital.org. It's estimated that over 240,000 men in the U.S. will be diagnosed with prostate cancer this year, with over 3,000 new cases being identified here in Connecticut. One in eight American men will develop prostate cancer in the course of his lifetime. Major advances in the detection and treatment of prostate cancer have dramatically decreased the number of men who die from the disease. Screening can be performed quickly and easily in a physician's office using two simple tests, a physical exam and a blood test. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as Yale Cancer Center and its Milo Cancer Hospital, where doctors are also using the Artemis machine, which enables targeted biopsies to be performed. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Gavit Woodard. Uh, We're talking about the care of patients with lung cancer in honor of Lung Cancer Awareness Month. So before the break, we were talking about a number of advances that have been made, everything from smoking cessation to advances in lung cancer screening. And we started talking a little bit about how patients with early lung cancer um, can get treated with minimally invasive surgery um, and often have really uh, excellent five-year survival rates. Now, before the break, uh, Gavit, you were telling us that another major advance has been for patients with advanced disease. So for those patients who may present uh, symptomatically, uh, who may have distant metastatic disease, 
we have something for them too, and that's advances in targeted and immunotherapy. So can you tell us a little bit more? Maybe paint a picture for us. Patients with advanced cancer, first off, what are the symptoms that they might present with that people should be aware of so that they can see their doctor? So patients with advanced cancer can, uh, with advanced lung cancer, can present with a variety of different symptoms. We think of cough, sometimes coughing up blood. Um, Often it could be something like pain or back pain, chest wall pain. Those are things that typically bring people to medical attention. And so after that, presumably a chest x-ray plus or minus a CT scan is done. And let's say lung cancer is found. Tell us about the most common places where lung cancer spreads to. You had mentioned that patients with advanced disease often present with distant metastatic disease at the time that they present initially to their doctor. So if a lung cancer was going to spread, where does it go? It can go to a variety of places. Um, It has a preference for sometimes we get solitary brain mets, um, the adrenal glands, bones, or even local spread within lymph nodes. But sometimes if those lymph nodes are outside of the field that we think of as typically being treated with surgery, even just spread within certain lymph nodes can be distant enough that we think of them as more advanced lung cancer. How are these patients treated? Sure. So the three main lines of systemic therapy that we have for patients are classic cytotoxic chemotherapy, um, and that's been around for many years. But then the newer therapies that we have, which are typically better tolerated with fewer side effects, are things like targeted therapy and immunotherapy, like you mentioned. So targeted therapy means that uh, the patient's tumor has a mutation where we have a drug that is matched specifically to address that mutation or that pathway. And about 40% of lung cancers have a targetable mutation. The issue with targeted therapy is that it's seen as a way of delaying progression or maybe getting a good response. But eventually, the vast majority of these patients um, get a mutation that allows them to overcome the drug. And so we will get a good response for a number of years until then they have uh, a mutation that then makes the drug stop working. And so we have to look for other lines of treatment for them at that point. But it's been a great way to prolong the life and stop disease progression in patients where there is that sort of match. The number one match uh, that we have is EGFR. That's the most common a targetable mutation that we have. And then now there's recently been a drug approved for patients who have a KRAS G12C mutation, and that accounts for about 13% of all uh, cancers. So 13% have a KRAS mutation, or is it 13% who have any targetable mutation? So 40% have any targetable mutation. So that's pretty good. So what do we do for the other 60%? Right. Well, that's the question. And um, so immunotherapy uh, has been a great breakthrough in this area. So basically, tumors have a way of avoiding a patient's own immune system. And often that's done through expression of PDL1, which kind of cloaks the tumor and allows it to hide from immune cells. 
new lines of immunotherapy work by uncloaking the tumors and allowing the patient's own immune system to see these cancers there, which they recognize as, oh, this is not a normal cell and attack. And that immunotherapy is where we have really seen a lot of these kind of miracle cancer cures where someone with widespread advanced disease responds to the drug and, you know, the disease melts away. And there are some patients who are living now for going on 10 years on some of these treatments. And so tell us more about these treatments. I mean, do you have to take this drug kind of for the rest of your life until you develop a mutation where it stops working? What are the side effects of these drugs? Does this mean that you're in the hospital getting an IV infusion every day? Are these oral therapies that you take? Do you lose your hair? Uh, Tell us more. Great question. Um, These uh, tend to be oral therapies. Um, They can be taken for shorter or longer periods of time, and that has been um, something that is actively being studied is how much treatment do you really need specifically for the immunotherapy drugs. Um, there is data that in patients who even just get a short amount of these, it's enough to train the immune system to go after tumor even when the patient is no longer on therapy. There have been two major immunotherapy trials that have come out um, in the last year that relate to our surgical patient population. This is um, one of them's Empower 010, and the other one is Checkmate 816. And what they boil down to are in patients who can have surgery, when should we be giving immunotherapy? Um, Both at one trial, Empower gave it after surgery, and the other trial, Checkmate, gave it before surgery but they both had really dramatic results in terms of um, extending disease-free survival for these patients. And so now we have all of these new treatment options that weren't available before, but now are changing the way that we think about lung cancer treatments. So it remains to be seen, you know, whether patients should be getting immunotherapy before surgery or after But in patients who have stage two and stage three disease, this is definitely now part of the treatment regimen for some of these patients. And so for the patients who present with distant metastatic disease, where we're using more and more of these targeted therapies, immunotherapy, and seeing really good response, is there a role then for surgery Um, If you've gotten a really good response, normally we always used to think that surgery was reserved only for patients who had localized disease. But is it beginning to have a role after neoadjuvant therapy um, for people who have distant metastatic disease? You should come to some of our tumor board discussions because these are exactly some of the scenarios that we talk about all the time. Right now, we are not considering that some sort of great response to immunotherapy or targeted therapy would make someone who wasn't a surgical candidate suddenly become a surgical candidate. But there are certainly exceptions to this when someone has maybe gone many years without disease progression in other places, and there's a single site of disease that starts to grow we will go in and resect these kind of oligo recurrences is what we call them. But so a, a single site or one or two sites that may be enlarging when ev- all the other sites of disease seem to be well controlled. And then 
you know, as we think about these patients living longer, um, talk to us a little bit more about their quality of life. I mean, clearly they would have gone through perhaps multiple rounds of systemic therapy, um, perhaps radiation if there was uh, metastases that were painful or so on and so forth. Um, but ultimately, do they have a good quality of life? What, what are we doing in terms of improving quality of life long term? Because it sounds like these patients nowadays more than ever before are living longer, but are they living better? Yeah, that's a, a good question. And it's nice to finally be at a place in lung cancer when we can start to think about survivorship and what that means for patients, because in the past, this wasn't a, a major problem that people were focused on. Um, knowing, you know, a lot of these newer therapies are expensive. Um, and so the financial toxicity of cancer is one new area of research that is coming up and people are studying. Certainly, we want to ensure that patients are living with the best quality of life possible. Um, though typically, you know, some of these newer drugs, immunotherapy and targeted therapy, the side effect profile is, uh, you know, fairly minimal. Sometimes some um, pulmonary toxicity, diarrhea, those tend to be frequent common complications uh, of these other therapies, but um, patients in general are living pretty well, and it's certainly better than the alternative. And what about people's family? I'm sure that, you know, especially as we see more and more lung cancer in never smokers, people are starting to ask themselves, well, why me? Why did I get lung cancer? Is there a genetic link? And what is the implication of having lung cancer on future generations? Does it increase the risk for your children, particularly if you were a never smoker? Yeah, I think that this is something we don't have an answer to right now. Um, so the, the quick answer is that right now there are no genes like a BRCA, you know, breast cancer equivalent for lung cancer that have been identified. However, there is probably some familial component, especially in patients who are never smokers, to developing lung cancer. We see this in particular among um, Asian patients. So within a, a never-smoking Asian patient population, they have a very high predominance of EGFR mutations. And there are some families where everyone in the family is uh, developing these kind of slow-growing EGFR-mutated lung adenocarcinomas. And that is something that people are studying, but uh, the exact genetic link has not yet been identified. Yeah, that certainly sounds like it's going to be a very interesting area of investigation. And speaking of which, in our last minute or so, what are the most exciting clinical trials on the horizon that you're watching? So for me as a surgeon, the things that impact us the most are these trials of when we're giving therapy, whether we're giving it before surgery or after surgery, and what is the best approach for patients that can result in a the most uh, prolonged, you know, disease-free survival and overall survival. And so, though there are currently not studies that are putting these head-to-head, -head, there's a study coming out soon, the Nadim 2 trial, looking at giving immunotherapy both before and after surgery. And those will be helpful in guiding our treatments for patients. And do we anticipate more uh, targeted therapies for mutations once cancers kind of 
overcome the therapies that we've already given them? What progress is being made there? Yes, there's a a lot of research into this. Um, You know, it it impacts a lot of patients. People are very excited for these targeted therapies. And so there are, you know, dozens of drugs currently in development. The other thing that we're probably going to see is the movement of these targeted therapies and immunotherapy, which have first been shown to be very effective in stage four patients. They're now being studied in stage two and stage three patients. And eventually, I think we can expect that these therapies will eventually trickle into the even earlier stage one patient population, where there probably is a benefit to some of those patients um, to receiving an additional therapy. Dr. Gavit Woodard is an assistant professor of surgery at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital.